Greetings, podcast listener. Welcome to Eat Half, Walk Double. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. This show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports. As a coach, race director, and athlete, told to the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. On today's show, I sit down with my great friend, business partner, and co-race director, Paul Kirsch. Paul is the most recognizable figure in New England mountain running for very good reason. Not only is he the USATF New England Mountain Trail Running Chairman, but he's been hosting races in New Hampshire for several decades. But as you'll learn, he was most certainly not born and raised in the white peaks of the Granite State. So here he is, Paul Kirsch. Hey, Paul, welcome to the, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. Well, it's, uh, it's really nice to, really nice to have you on the show. Um, you know, I, I, I think most people assume because, you know, we, we, we work together, uh, putting races on that we are in constant communication with each other and that we see and hang out with each other all the time. But the truth is, um, <laughs> we don't always see each other all the time. And, and because you and I have been working together, putting these events on uh, for quite some time now, we, <laughs> it's not like we have to have a lot of uh, like a lot of ongoing communication. Like we kind of have these events dialed in. So it's almost like, uh, you know, the week before the race. Hey, Paul. Yeah. Duh, we all set for Cranmore. Yeah, we're all we're all set. They're going to be mowing this and that. OK, well, all right, well, uh, what time do you want me to be there on Saturday? Well, you don't need to get so like so th this is actually a, un a unique opportunity for me to talk to you outside of us actually discussing putting on an event. And primarily, if people are wondering, our biggest interaction regularly is liking each other's dog pictures on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> it is so, it is so, it's so very, it's so very true. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you and I obviously share, uh, we, we share a lot of things in common. Uh, love for dogs is, is probably at the top of, of that list. Um, Hey, listen, I've got a, I got a, I've got a question for you. It's, it's a burning question actually that I've had for a, a really long time. And I don't know that I've ever had, had the opportunity to ask you, but, um, how does a kid from Philly become one of the most recognizable figures in new England mountain racing? So, um, if you saw me in college, you would not recognize the Paul from now either. Um, <clears throat> so grew up in Philly and then right after college, I had a friend who moved to the main coast and, um, went up to visit him for a week. Like he, he worked for a lawyer who had a place on the coast and went to Castine, Maine in a cabin there with him, my brother, and a few other friends. And I just had this aha moment that I got to move to Northern New England. At some point, I have to move to Northern New England. And so the audience knows Chris and I have accepted that if there are dogs barking in the background on this, that's only fitting for two guys who <laughs> post about their dogs every day. Of so anyway, my, of course, my dogs are barking. Yes, but but no, I um, I pretty much fell in love with Northern New England, and then. I was like, so how do I get up here? What am I going to do for work? And then I was working for a software company in Philly who um, they 
had they purchased a company that was two guys in Center Sandwich, New Hampshire, and they were looking to build an office around them. And so I was currently engaged and my wife of now 30 years said, can you wait until after the marriage for us to move up there? And so that's what we did. And I moved up and then a guy I was working with. So I was working at Center Sandwich, which um, from a guy from the Philly suburbs is kind of like it was everything up here was fascinating. Like I helped with a sled dog race the first year. I felt like I was in an episode of Northern Exposure, which was for those of you who remember that. Yeah, it's like the guy from the city going to Alaska. Um, but then I had a friend who um, was really into hiking and we would go up Rattlesnake Mountain before work. And then we would also go at lunch and we just kept going faster and faster and faster. And it became a game. Um, to kind of see how fast we could go, just hiking. And then I had another coworker who said, if you guys like doing that, you should go do the Mount Washington road race. And so it took me a couple of years to get in for the lottery. I did it and it was the most horrible experience of my life. Of I thought I was prepared and I wasn't prepared and it was miserable. And um, this year is will be hopefully my 19th finish. Um, so I haven't, I never learned, um, but I did learn to enjoy it. And kind of from there, um, really started diving into running more and more and mountain and trail running. Although ironically, originally paved mountain running, like I never ran on trails. I, I was afraid I'd get hurt. And then um, kind of kept going with that. Met Kevin Tilton was doing, uh, doing some mountain runs with him and then the Cranmore mountain race needed a race director. And I, that was my favorite race it had become. And so I took that over, uh, Richard Bolt, who's one of the mountain team, uh, managers. He was the USATF new England chair at the time. And he was doing outreach to all of these different races to see, Hey, you want to be part of the mountain circuit. And so it had it become part of the mountain circuit. And then the following year, he reached out to me and he said, would you like to be one of the qualifier races for the U.S. mountain running team, which caused my head to explode of like, how would what you said, a city kid from Philly, be qualified to do this? And it was kind of one of those, uh, I think there were two or three qualifiers that year. And you look and you try and make a course like at that point, Cranmore was uphill only up the service road. And you try and make a course that was like the world championships. And that ended up being a three lap up and down for men, two lap up and down for women. And that was, that was something, honestly, there were no other short mountain races in new England doing that, like that level of steepness and everything. And then kind of got to know people around the mountain running team from hosting qualifiers. And then I got hurt for like two years and couldn't run. And uh, so I decided to kind of dive into volunteering more and more. And then I got connected with the mountain running team and uh, Dave Dunham stepped down as the junior team manager. I stepped in in 2010 and I've just continued to be involved and it's a lot of fun. And I always joke around, I'm a much better race director than I am runner. So it fits well. well. Yeah, well, I, well, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, 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 I might argue that contention. Uh, you and I have had the opportunity 
uh, to race against each other uh, throughout the years. And uh, I always felt like we were uh, uh, we were we were pretty well matched. And uh, and and at one point, uh, as one of my recent Facebook shares would suggest, you and I were actually pretty fit um, uh, a number of years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, 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 I got a, a, a quick follow-up question. So, um, um, you weren't living in, in the center sandwich area when you, when you first moved up. No, uh, we, we came to, uh, Laconia first, um, just because honestly that was pre internet look up anything. So we just bought a New Hampshire, uh, gazetteer there and, and we looked at places that were close to center sandwich that we thought two people from Philly could deal with. Like we didn't want to be too small. And so <clears throat> we moved to Laconia, um, running a condo there. And we were there for like three years. And then there was this amazing opportunity to rent the back of a gentleman's farm in Holderness, which was like right on, you know, had access to Squam Lake. Absolutely amazing. And then from there, uh, my wife, Catalina, got a job in um, Madison. And so I remember we drove over to Madison, New Hampshire, and we couldn't believe how out in the middle of nowhere it was. Um, and we bought a house here. And now I think Ossipi's out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's uh, and the, so that was kind of the migration. We started there and then we realized, you know, once, once we were looking for a house and everything, we wanted to be in the Mount Washington Valley. And so that's the other coincidence, I guess, is it wasn't because of mountain running. We wanted to be in the Mount Washington Valley. It just seemed like a cool community. And then that kind of grew from there, getting involved with the mountain running stuff. Um, well, it, it, yeah, I mean, it definitely it definitely became uh, your it became your tribe. Right. It, eventually. Right. Um, well, uh, you and I have an interesting connection to, uh, to to Center Sandwich or the sandwich area um, in so much as um I first learned of you um, um, when you were the race director for the Side Hiller Snowshoe Race. This must have been the, jeez, uh, I think it was two thousand six. Uh, yes, I think I was yeah. going to say I was going to say early early two thousands two thousand six. Um, I was looking. I personally was looking for a, a, a winter activity to kind of keep me busy and interested. Uh, I was a. I had been a trail runner for a little while, and I heard of this sport of snowshoe racing, and um, it seemed to me when I when I first sort of started, you know, looking into it that most of the races were out west, uh, out west, uh, western Massachusetts. Again, that must that might as well have been uh, western Oregon, <laughs> right. as far away as western Mass is, Adams Mass and and uh, Florida Mass and just western Mass. You know, was seemed like an eternity, uh, seemed like seemed like the other side of the universe. But nevertheless, that's where the that's where the snowshoe races, it appeared to me, were being held uh, right? the Western Mass Snowshoe Series or something to that effect. Uh, there was actually a really robust snowshoe racing series in Western Massachusetts. It, 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 and it had, it, had, it had been in existence for some time, which was my understanding. Well, then when I so I, I got into that, I, I did a couple of races in that series the year before I met you. Um, and it was fun. And so when the next winter rolled around, I was looking for more races and I learned, I don't, can't remember how, probably an internet search learned about the side hiller snowshoe race and, and, uh, showed up at that point. I didn't, I didn't know who I had not met you. Um, uh, I had, I had kind of 
heard of who you were, but didn't actually have a chance to, to meet you personally. Um, but I'll, <laughs> I'll never forget. I, I, I want to say that first year, I think there were the first year that I did it. I think there were 10 finishers. Yeah. Uh, I, and I was <clears throat> like third or fourth, um, behind Dave Dunham, who of course won it. Um, uh, and I'm, uh, Bill Morse, I think, um, 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 who was, who was big into snoochery, uh, Bob Dion was, was there. Um, do you remember, do you remember those, those early days of oh, the, yeah. the side hiller? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and yeah, t tell me about, tell me about how did you make the connection? How did you get involved in a, in a, in a snoochery race in center sandwich in 2006 or well, 2005 I, or 2004, whenever you started the race? I, I think it was 2006 and kind of like a lot of my trail related things in or mountain running things in the Mount Washington Valley, all roads lead to Kevin Tilton. Um, I think it was Kevin who got snowshoes first that I knew. Um, and I went to some snowshoe races with him, Western Mass Athletic Club Series as well, and kind of got inspired to do a race up near us. And when I was thinking where to do it, at that point, my wife and I had been the trail crew bosses for the sandwich side hiller or sorry uh yeah the sandwich notch 60 um sled dog race it was a 60 mile sled dog race so we had been doing that for 10 years and it built this great relationship with the side hillers and so when it came time to think well you know where am i going to find a course and everything i went to them because i knew we had a really nice like if we could use the same trails as the sled dog race obviously not all of them but start at the fairgrounds do a loop across the street i thought it would be really unique because we go right through people's backyards they already had the relationship there and so we had the race it was a, like you said it was a small turnout that first year and then it became part of the uh, western mass series as they were looking to grow <clears throat> And that's how it grew a little bit more, you know, each, each year. And like Richard Bolt had put on a race down in, uh, uh, the Manchester area. Um, I forget the name of it. Was that Massabesic snowshoe race? Cause I think that was the back when we had like double header weekends. Um, and, it, and the sport was growing big time and, you know, Bob Dion was loaning out, you know, he still does, but loaning out snowshoes everywhere. And I felt like, yeah, the sport was really growing and it was fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I think Kevin Tilton then next did one at uh, Whitaker Woods in North Conway as well. Yeah, and we we got in Acidotic Racing um, uh, actually hosted uh, the first race that we hosted was a snowshoe race, and must have been two. I want to say it was two thousand seven. It might have been the year after. Maybe it was two thousand eight. It, it was it was shortly after I had had that. Um, that experience at the side hiller snowshoe race at your snowshoe race that first year in 2006, um, that I thought, you know what, we, we could, we could probably do this. And to your point, um, um, it seemed to me that at that time that it, there was an opportunity, um, to, in other words, there was space for someone to start another race, obviously not, not in, not in direct competition with side hiller, but in, in a coordinated fashion. Um, um, I mean, the winter is typically only 13, you know, weekends long. So, um, um, but, but, you know, there, again, it was, it was growing. There was an opportunity. Uh, we hosted our first snowshoe race uh, at Gunstock, the Cobble Mountain Snowshoe Classic. Shortly after that, um, um, as, you know, as I 
saw the sport growing as I, as I clearly saw your interest in it. And I think at that point you and I had, um, had introduced, uh, ourselves uh, to each other we got to know each other a little bit um we realized that there was you know there was an opportunity to to basically provide the trail and mountain running community with a place to be in the winter time and 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 in fact that's sort of what happened right um a lot of the people as as snowshoe racing in new hampshire really began to grow in the late 2000s by 2010 you know we were at that point, there were probably, I don't know, eight, nine, ten snowshoe races in New Hampshire alone. Um, we were routinely getting 50, 75, 100 people show up at a snowshoe race in the wintertime. And uh, I mean, don't don't you don't you agree that during its heyday, that a lot of those people were the people we were seeing uh, at at trail races and mountain races? It definitely was. <clears throat> and then um, I also heard from some triathletes that, that that was how they kept fit in the winter. Um, yeah, it's funny. And to tie it into my mountain running world, like at that point I had known Richard Bolt and that he may have been another reason how I got involved, but I had known Richard Bolt since he was the USATF New England mountain guy. Um, he was, um, he introduced me to Dave Dunham at Dave's Northfield race. And he, at that point, I think all I knew of Dave at that point is Dave was one of the guys jogging down Mount Washington while I was, while I was still running up. And that's about my sum total of knowledge of Dave. Um, and, um, and it's funny because I remember I went up to him and I said, and Richard gave an introduction, you know, Paul's the race director for the Cremor Hill climb. And it was kind of fun because Dave immediately reacted. And first of all, Dave holds the course record at Cranmore when it was uphill only. But also that's how he got into snowshoe running is he won a pair of snowshoes at the Cranmore Hill Climb the year he did it when he was up there in the summer. And so there was just a fun connection. And it, it's funny how people get a persona because Dave's this crazy good mountain runner. Um, I mean, you look at the things he's done, the stuff he's done with the U.S. mountain running team. You know, he was on the podium at Worlds. And if you just kind of see that aura side of Dave, it's like, is this guy going to be approachable? And then like within 10 minutes, you're like laughing your tail off because Dave's just a regular goofy guy who just happens to run a lot. <laughs> the greatest, the greatest challenge with, uh, with double D with Dave Dunham is to get him to stick around after a race long enough as a race director in order to have a conversation with him, because inevitably, uh, I mean, Dave's obviously very, you know, uh, at, you know, at one point and, and still is very connected with the trail and mountain running scene, uh, you know, here in New England, clearly. Um, but he always, he, well, he typically disappears pretty quickly after the race. So it's, if you, if you catch him, you got to catch him before the, before the race. Cause, cause almost always, you know, when you're looking around for him after the race, wh Hey, where's double D No, he's gone. Like he is, you know, we, I, I've got a handful of like awards that he's won. Well, double D is gone. Like he's halfway, he's halfway, you know, back to home, uh, by now. Well, and I remember with the snowshoe series, um, he would always be gone because he does volunteer tax returns. Um, uh, he works for a certain government agency that we will not speak of at the moment, but, uh, but no, he does, uh, he does tax returns for people who need assistance and that's how he spends his weekends during tax season, which is also snowshoe season. So as soon as the race would be over, he's like, all right, I got to go, uh, type of thing. But, uh, yeah, you'll have to, if, if you ever have him on, um, hopefully you'll discuss action, Dave, that 
<laughs> well, it, as it's funny that you say that because uh, I just sent out an invitation for Double D to be on the podcast, and he has agreed. Um, and so, in addition to in addition to Action Dave, which will most certainly be on the agenda. I'm also going to ask him about the uh, origination of the slogan, um, no safe word at the Loon Mountain Race. You mentioned mentioned Rich Bolt. Um, You also mentioned Dave Dunham. Uh, the names Rich Bolt and Dave Dunham uh, make me think about the Loon Mountain Race and the and the origins of the Loon Mountain Race. Um, so for for the listener that's that's not familiar, uh, although it's hard to imagine that uh, that someone listening to the sh- to the show would not be familiar um, with the fact that you uh, you were the creator of the loon mountain race. But the truth is that you had some, you had some help, uh, in the, in the original design of the course. So, uh, that's a fascinating story that I've heard a lot of myth and legend surrounding. Uh, I'm wondering if you can set the record straight in terms of how did the loon mountain race course come to be and who coined the phrase, no safe word. Sure. So, uh, Loon was, it, it's funny because, um, I think of those early 2000 years as my high energy, um, low judgment years. Um, <laughs> I took over the Cranwell race, uh, started side hiller, um, was still president of the milers at that point, still running. And then they needed a mountain team qualifier that was uphill only. And at that point there was a real focus on, we need to get uphill races that are on the right surface too. And so they're looking for something in the East. And when I say the right surface, um, most of the world championships are in and have been in Europe, at least until recently. And they tend to be technical. Um, They're not running up a paved road. Uh, New England's pretty unique. There's a few races out there in the US and a few in uh, Europe. Um, but they were really looking for some qualifiers where somebody would put together a course. And so uh, I spent some time just looking at mountain elevations where there were ski areas. And uh, Loon looked like it had about 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Um, if we did some creativity, I think actually, I'm not even sure we realized it was that much. Um, th- this was the dark ages before Strava when you couldn't just have <laughs> other devices figure it out for you. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, uh, myself, Dave Dunham and Richard Bolt, we went over and met with the events manager and he, uh, kind of gave us, you know, a, a quick tour of the bottom. Then we rode the gondola up to the top and we're kind of talking about what we could use for uh different courses and things but then we're realizing like we don't have enough elevation and we're kind of all talking there at the whatever the cafe is there the summit cafe or and um richard at the, at the top at the top of the gondola yeah at the top of the gondola yeah. and um richard looks over to north peak and goes well what about over there and the guy's like well to get over there I don't know whether you want to do, you know, that's a black diamond ski slope and you're going to have to go down this other trail and go up over there. And I think the three of us kind of said, well, we won't have to <laughs> just run our slope, <laughs> but kind of, kind of joking with each other. But, um, and it's kind of funny because it's that, what about over there that became to me, which is the marquee part of Loon, which is upper walking boss. And it's kilometer of whatever, 30 to 40% grade. And 
um, and you know why honestly I feel like most people do the race um, is to be able to say that they they went up that um, I always think it's funny because you just at that point the race finished at the gondola so you descend back down I think it's sunset and I always think it's funny that people used to talk about upper walking boss is being horrendous. And I always thought running down sunset is actually just as horrendous with the water bars, but rarely did people talk agree. about it. <laughs> I would, uh, I would absolutely concur. Yes. Um, so yeah, so it, it really just started that way and we're like, sure. All right, we'll do that. And then we just, and then I actually have right before Thanksgiving trying to make a course. And I think at that point I had a handheld GPS of some sort that I had borrowed or owned. Um, and my wife and I, with our dog bear at the time, we went up and cause we still hadn't checked out North peak. And so we, I don't know if we took the gondola. I think it was, it was like right before Thanksgiving, but we kind of hiked up to get to there. And then we started going up this thing and we were like in hysterics. And then plus there was snow all over it. And we're like, you know, making Edmund Hillary jokes uh, as we're going up this thing in the snow. Um, and that's kind of how the course came about was just checking it out. And, you know, we were able to get enough distance that way. And, uh, and that's the course, you know, there's been a few changes recently because of some construction. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, that's the crux of the course and all. So the, so the first time you went up upper walking boss, when you first time you went up upper walking boss was, was that November, yeah, and I think I think the urgency it may have been right around Halloween when I think about it because I think the urgency was we had to get a bid together for the USATF National Convention which was typically in November and so we needed to get a course profile together. And, and so this that was, was actually the first time. Yeah. And this was this was 2005? That would have been 2005 because the first time it occurred was 2006. Yeah. Okay. All right. So <laughs> So you're 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 making Edmund Hillary jokes as you are ascending Upper yes. Walking Boss. Uh, now it's, it's snow covered, so you, you're gonna you're sort of probably having to use your imagination of what this is going to be like. Um, uh, now at that in 2006, the, the race has always been in July, correct? Um, I or think was, so. I think yeah, it okay. may have been, I think one year it was in June, like late June, but it's okay. always been in that time frame. Yeah. But it's been, it's been in the summer. So you're, yeah. so you're walking up upper walking boss and it's snow covered and you're, tr you're having to use your imagination of how miserable this is going to be in the middle of the summer uh, as people are ascending this. So um, when, when do, when do Richard Bolt and Dave Dunham actually have the opportunity to, to preview that section? Because they, they hadn't to your point, they hadn't that, that first visit, they looked, you guys looked up to the top of North peak and said, okay, well then that that's an opportunity, but neither Richard nor Dave had gone up upper walking boss yet. Were you with them the first time that they, that they went up upper walking boss? I don't remember when Richard first saw it. Um, Cause I can't remember if he was living in Oregon at that point already. I think he was. Um, and so Dave, I think, first saw it when we flagged the course, if I remember correctly. Um, and I don't remember, I don't think it was the first year that the slogan came about. I think it was a couple years later. It was a conversation with myself, uh, Tim Van Orden, who's kind of a legendary mountain runner and snowshoe runner. And I'd gotten to know him well. And Dave and the three of us. Um, and we were on a conversation that... Um, 
uh, I don't know. Is, is, is this a P this is a PG podcast, right? It can, it can be what it can be, well, whatever we want it to be. To, I have okay. the opportunity after okay. the show to, to designate it as explicit if I need to do that. Well, Tim, Tim had had uh, an acquaintance that was a dominatrix um, when he was out in LA. And I remember he was sharing some stories um, and we'll just keep it at stories. And that, of course, Dave being um, being the king of Seinfeld and other. No, 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 not even double entendres. Uh, the um, king of Seinfeld and then also the king of funny movies like that. He makes a reference to I think it was National Lampoon's European vacation where there's a safe word that the guy can't pronounce. Um, and so we're making jokes about that. And this is why we're marking the course. And. Tim Van Orden was doing a lot of uh, YouTube videos at that point. Um, and so he's filming us setting up the course and everything. And I just remember uh, we're talking and something about the course at one point. And then I just made the uh, the joke comment when we were after the steep. I just said, well, there's no safe word at the Loon Mountain Race because that had been the running joke of safe words earlier on. And it just it stuck. And then I think I started putting it on the shirt the following year after that video. and. I think what I've enjoyed the most is just having people come up to me like runners who've done it, who like had no other connection to me and they'd make a dry humor joke about no safe word. And then the other interesting trivia for anyone who ever runs at Loon, and if you can ever find one of the older shirts is uh, I was looking for something to put on the back of the shirts one year, like you want a cool slogan for the race or whatever. And so what I did is all of the warning signs and other languages in the gondola that say, don't stick your hands out became the lettering, became the wording like nicht out, auf hinsland, something like that. And then all the other ones, that was what was on the back of the shirt. And I remember one year when we, the shirts came out, a guy comes up to me, he goes, so is this no safe word in four <laughs> other languages? And I was like, no, 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 this is just from the gondola. So now did you, did, did you have any inkling? Um, that first year or those first few years that the Loon Mountain Race would become uh, what, what it eventually would become uh, years later? No, no, none whatsoever. We had 80 people the first year and I was so psyched. And then I think we got over 100 and that I was ecstatic with that, like triple digits for that race. And I still, uh, it's funny, I had a conversation with somebody just a couple weeks ago who asked me like, so how did it get so big? And I was like, I think it was a combination of happenstance and it's the right time of year when things are occurring in July in that area. So you have some people that checked it out. And then, as you know, we were really fortunate to get some press and some magazines. Uh, I think it was in running times and then runner's world and outside Out, magazine outside magazine <laughs> yeah there's kind of like you know something on your uh, list of things things to do before you die kind of things and i think that got some interest plus holding the national champs there but honestly it was growing already before that um and then when, when did was it 2012 you first got involved i think i think that's right um honestly I think you were a big part of helping to put it over the top because um, it's been interesting for those of you who were listening to this, who don't know, um, you know, Chris and I have been involved in race directing. Was Loon our first venture together, I guess. I, I think it was. Um, and how that occurred. I was, 
I was just getting burnt out at that point. I had Side Hiller. I had um, the Cranmore Hill Climb. I was still president of the Milers, and I was involved in, you know, all their events and things. And I was just starting to get burnt out on race directing. And um, I reached out to Chris to see if Acidotic would take over Loon because um, as silly as it sounds, it's like that's a race I created. So I didn't want it to get ruined. Um, and what would ruin be to me that suddenly it was 150 bucks to get in and it had production and people were using words like awesome and charging people a hundred dollars and all these. Yeah. I just, I wanted it to still have kind of a feel. Um, probably some people might think it has lost that feel, but that's okay. Um, and anyway, I, um, yeah, I reached out to Chris and, um, Chris was like, sure, I'll take it over, but you're going to stay on. Um, and I was like, darn it. <laughs> and right. then it was the best thing that ever happened because Loon logistically has a lot of challenges to it. It's, it's a ski area with a lot going on in the summer. So you got to kind of navigate working with the mountain, um, you know, because they do have a lot of other things going on there and it just kept growing. And Chris, um, like I've always kind of been on the course side and then working out outreach to elite athletes. And then Chris has been more on a lot of the other stuff. And honestly, to me, one of the best things Chris has ever does with races is you're an amazing promoter. And um, you. you raise the level of the race from a mountain race to you need to do this mountain race. And it's crazy how it grew. And then we did the trail sisters thing that got us more, people. And that to me was such an awesome thing where what we were hoping we'd get 30 first time women and what, I don't remember how many we got. At this yeah. Time. Let's, yeah. In fact, let's, yeah. um, let, let's, let's talk more about that because I think, um, you know, quite, quite honestly with, um, with, with, with all that I believe that we accomplished with that race, the, you know, the, the amazing growth, uh, the fact that, you know, that we, you and I were able to grow the race to, you know, over a thousand finishers, um, you know, to make it, you know, one of the three premier mountain races in the country with, you know, with Pikes Peak and, and Mount Washington, um, with hosting, you know, several national championships, uh, and international championships. and good yes. point and international championships. Um, for me, um, I, I think, um, one of the things that I'll always be the most proud about related to that race um, is that uh, Trail Sisters initiative uh, that you and I uh, undertook? Um, tell tell the listener uh, a little bit about what 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 are Trail Sisters? What what is that organization? And what um, what what were we attempting to accomplish? What was this, Paul? 2018, 2019. I think it was no. I think it was sixteen. Two thousand sixteen. Because um, yeah, it was. I think it was a year of a mountain champs. Um, so. Uh, and she's a household name at this point, uh, Gina Lucrezzi, um, who started uh, Trail Sisters. It's funny. I first got to know Gina. Um, she became a rep for Innovate Shoes and moved after college up to New England. And so um, uh, she became, uh, it's, it's funny, she became like the, the daughter that my wife and I never had. She'd come up and stay with us and she'd do mountain runs with us and did the whole mountain circuit that year. And I got to know her well. I was a rep for Innovate on the side. So she would bring a delivery box of shoes for me to sell. And that, that was awesome. And um, Gina was just a phenomenal runner, super person and everything. And then she moved to Colorado after that and 
kind of, you know, she was doing a lot of running stuff and she took up the idea of trail sisters, which I just love the concept. It was to make trail running more inclusive for women. Um, and I can tell you in Northern New England, um, like it's interesting in, in other areas of running, you've, we've seen a huge growth of women getting involved, um, you know, sometimes a bigger field than men in marathons and other areas. It wasn't true in New England mountain running um, at that point. And um, Gino was trying to start, you know, at that point, it was just in its infancy with uh, Trail Sisters. And it was really about let's get more women out on the trails. And so we reached out to Gina to say, hey, can we use your brand name of a way to, you know, and obviously her logo and her endorsement to try and get more women at Loon. And we said, hey, if it's a first time runner, I think it was like 15 bucks to get in if you were a first time uh, woman running at Loon. And I remember at the time, we yeah, we were hoping for like 30 women. And partially, we wanted to send a message as much as get people there, because I think it's great to be able to support an initiative like that. Um, there, there's a lot of pioneers around that, like uh, if you're familiar with Casey Enman, um, Casey was um, a huge push, and her sister-in-law Molly is also a push in the Nordic world to try and get equal distances for men and women at world championships, collegiate events, and so forth. And so it was already kind of top of mind of let's get more women involved. Um, and so I, I don't remember, but I feel like we had like 300 trail sisters. And for the first time we had equal number of men and women at the event. And suddenly we were at a thousand people and it was just, I don't know. I felt like Chris, there was a point at which we're kind of getting ready for the race and the parking lots filling up and now they have an overflow parking lot. And I just wanted to look at you and say, wait a minute, someone here is going to notice that these two jokers here. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to go, wait, well, how are you two qualified for an event this big to organize it? Um, and everything, everything, you know, so far it's, it's all gone great. And all, but, but yeah, that was such a memorable event that year. It was, uh, it was quite moving to see and to, you know, similar to any race, that's a challenge. You stand at the finish line at Loon and you're going to see some people, the look of accomplishment on their faces when they finish um, is worth every, phone call and planning session and everything else. Um, and that trail sisters, you're kind of captain that way. Yeah. And just to, uh, just to put some, uh, historical context, uh, to put, to put some rough numbers on, on what, what you're referring to. Um, you and I had, had had the conversation. I mean, we'd had multiple conversations before that year, before we, before we, we decided, um, to, to take on the, the trail sisters initiative. We, we, we had had conversations typically it would happen in the off season after, a uh, after, a, a mountain running circuit. Um, you know, the conversation would go something like, um, you know, what, what opportunities do we have for growth? Right. Because, you know, uh, to, to your earlier point about Dave and the and the government organization, which will remain unnamed that he works for, um, Dave Dave crunches numbers for a living, right? That's 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 what he right. does, and uh, and so if if the if if the USA Track and Field New England Mountain Circuit has nothing, it has great data um, because Dave has collected the data, and so um, and so you know with with a with just a simple email to Dave about hey Dave. 
what's our male to female distribution look like? You know, what 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 do our age range uh, uh, breakdowns look like? What was clear in those in that in that year or two leading up to that to 2016 and that Trail Sisters initiative was that a um, the participants in the USA track and field New England mountain circuit were a predominantly male. And I want to say it was like 70, 30 and 70 ish, 30 ish, 70% men, 30% women. Um, and we were trending toward older men as well. Now as a older male, uh, I know you, you were in that cohort cohort as well. I have nothing against older men. The, the, the reality though, is if you're going to, if the sport is going to have any sustainability, A, you've got to attract younger people, and B, you've got to close the gap between ma- um, you know, male and female participation. It just, it just was, and it had been obvious for quite some time. It just took an honest conversation between you and I and some others about what are we going to do about this? And so, um, yeah, to your point, we made the leap. We said, if you're a first-time participant, female participant at our Loon Mountain race, it's 50% off the registration, right? Um, and you're right. We had an overwhelming, we had an overwhelming response. Um, and as it turns out, ironically enough, and, and, and actually this, um, this, this, this irony, I think actually solidified um, and cauterized the, um, the, the, the whole initiative that was the year that at Loon, the, the men's race and the women's race were two different races. Yes. We, we separated the field because we, you know, this was an A, was a national championship. And B, we had a thousand starters, roughly. Um, there was no way we were going to be able to put a thousand people all at once on that course without there being just significant bottlenecks. And, you know, and it, it would it would have backfired on us big time. Um, so I think you you made the decision uh, was uh, that, you know, let's break the field in two. Let's have a men's race and a women's race. Um, I don't know. Had that been done? Maybe it had been done before. Was there precedent to that? I don't recall. Well, like, like I think I'm used to it from my involvement with the mountain team. That's what world champs do. You know, each race uh, under 20, um, under 20 men, under 20 women, senior women, senior men all have separate races. So, okay. and, you know, you think of some, you know, collegiate races, same thing. Um, so, yeah, there, there was some precedent, but you're right. For us, it was logistics. One of my favorite memories of that was... Um, my wife standing kind of at the turnaround of where they start, start the race. They kind of come up a little bit of dirt road and they have to cross the parking lot to get to the mountain. And she stood there and did a video, which I think was Facebook live at that point. And she tagged trail sisters and Gina shared it. And I could tell like there was just happiness from Gina's standpoint of there was a lot of camera time to get that number of women by and that was a big deal at a race to do that and it's been cool to see like gina has taken trail sisters like actually now the loon race um which is now a 603 event um and you know tom hooper has continued to do a phenomenal job and i i have to pause for a second and uh you know note that in the same way that you know i wanted to make sure when you got involved that it stayed kind of pure to its origins. And I feel like Tom has done that too, which is great. And um, now Loon, our Waterville race, our Cranmore mountain race are all trail sisters certified, which is a new program trail sisters has started, which I just love. 
And it's not a complicated thing, but it's things like different clothing sizes, men and women, um, same awards for both men and women. Um, if it's a longer race, are there feminine products at aid stations? It's just, and, you know, recognition of start and things like that. And I, I just love the concept because I feel like sometimes you can make big changes with small gestures like that. Um, and I think Gene has just done such a tremendous job. And I feel so fortunate that we were able to kind of get involved with that in the beginning. Like here's two guys <laughs> doing it, which is, um, it just, it made me very happy. Cause you know, I feel like I got to see Gina get involved in mountain running in New England. And so it's been great to me to watch her just kind of grow and grow and grow with what she does. Yeah. And the, and the, 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 the trail sisters sort of seal of, of approval, um, you know, for, for you and I, I mean, we had been doing a lot of, we've been doing a lot of those things for quite some time. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's, in other words, it was, that was really easy for us. That was not a heavy lift at all for us, you know, to, to, to make, you know, um, uh, uh, a few additional changes, um, in, in order to, in order to continue to, um, to, to break down and remove some of the barriers to, to, to participation. Well, just, just to sort of put a fine point on that, that 2016 year, um, you know, I, I mean, you, 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 mentioned optics, uh, well, you, you referred to optics when you talked about, uh, uh, cat, uh, filming that women's start. Uh, yeah, I, I will never forget sending, you know, 500 women off, you know, at the start of the women's race uh, yeah. that year, I, you always you always handled the, the the end of the race. I typically handled the start of the race. Um, it was really cool to see all those women standing there in that gravel parking lot down by the by the bound by the Pemigewasset River uh, before the start. Just, I mean, there was there was excitement and, and electricity for the men's start, but it was a total different vibe for the women's start. I think mostly because there were 300 first time female participants that year. And they're just, there was a buzz um, yeah. th that I, I just, I will never, I will never forget that. Um, now, um, I mean, I, I, I would be interested to see um, what, um, you know, what residual impact that had going forward. Um, I, you know, I'm not, of course, you know, <laughs> we ran into a buzzsaw with, with COVID, you know, for, for two years. And so that certainly didn't, that didn't help anyone's participation numbers, but it will be interesting to see, um, you know, as, as things begin to return uh, back to some sense of normalcy with respect to race directing, um, if that male and female particip participation gap doesn't continue to close, at least in mountain and trail running. Yeah, it's, it's great to see. And I think with Loon, like I remember last year, because of COVID, they had to cap it at like 800 people and Tom was turning people away. So I think and, you know, and that was another way that the race grew. And then, you know, the best of all is we did that one year and then so many of those people came back. And that that was the cool part was to see them back. And I forget we had given them a specific piece of swag for first timers. And it was cool the next year to see people coming back with that same you know, they were yeah it was uh it, yeah it was a it was a uh blaze orange loon mountain race bondy band it was like a head that's right 
That's and right. it was re- it was really e- yeah it was it was really obvious to see who were returners because they they came back with with their headband. Hey, before before I uh, ask you about um, what's happening this year with the Loon Mountain Race, um, you, you got you got to tell if, as as much as you can recall, you got to tell the story about the couple that asked about uh, a marriage proposal at the Loon Mountain Race. Do you remember that story? Yes. Well, actually they didn't ask. Um, yeah. What, what happened with that? What's that story? So I was working the finish line. That was three years ago, four years ago. Um, and um, they, so there's, some people finished and there I noticed a guy there dressed in, I think it was shorts and a collared shirt. Um, and a group of women had finished and it, it's a little bit blurry, but all of a sudden I see the guy down on his knee proposing to his, you know, suddenly fiance who had just finished uh, the race. And honestly, it was just so cool to see. Um, and like anyone around, like we've all seen marriage proposals in public. This was a pretty cool one. And um, I, w- I was able to snap a couple pictures of it. And um, it was just fun. And then the following year, they both did the race. Um, he is not a regular runner. Um, so that I remember that was kind of some some comedy and fun for him. But he was a good sport about it, extremely good sport about it. But they got married. I think it was right before the race following year. And yeah, and they're always welcome back because it was just such a cool thing. Um, yeah. In, in all, in all of your years, uh, as a race director, and that includes many, many years, uh, have, have you ever seen a marriage proposal at the end of one of your races? No, no. The, I was going to say the only other, like, uh, we, we can talk about bears in the woods at Cranmore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and what they were doing, but no, I've never, never had anything close to a marriage proposal. Um, I guess, you know, I, I, and I guess that experience really, um, I mean, both, both, both the trail sisters, uh, phenomena that year, uh, and the fact that somebody proposed at the end of the loon mountain race really just, I think speaks volumes about what that race had become. Like it had become that big, that much of a big deal that this guy felt like what, what, what better place, what better time than to propose, right. To my future wife at the top of North peak at the end of the loon mountain race. I mean, of all places, of all things, right. That's what the, that's really what, what the race had become. Um, I just, I, I just think that's a really, really cool story. Well, at some point, um, just prior to the just prior to the pandemic, you and I had a discussion that, um, yeah, maybe it was maybe this was the best time for us to both step away uh, from the event um, that, um, you know, we I, I mean, at least for me, I felt like I had done just about everything that I could and wanted to do with the with the event, with with, you know, helping you to grow it the way we grew it, hosting multiple championships, the Trail Sisters thing. Like, I really felt like like I had done what I wanted to do with, with the race and that it was, it was time to hand it over to someone else. Fortunately for me, you felt the same way. And that's when we reached out to, to Tom Hooper and, uh, and Tom agreed uh, to, uh, to allow us to hand the event over to him. And uh, again, then a pandemic hit and, (laughs) and Tom has kind of struggled with that, but he was able to your point was able to, to host the race last year, 
which, um, by the way, I participated in. It was interesting to, uh, to, to, to finally come back as a participant. I was a participant the year before. Uh, I came on as the race director and it was the most God awful experience I've ever had. Loon is really, that race is really hard. Um, and then, and then I was able to return as a participant again, the year after, uh, or two years after, uh, we, we handed the event over. So that was sort of an interesting full circle. Um, so you are the USATF New England, um, mutt, uh, too bad, too bad snowshoe racing isn't still right. a thing or you'd be the smut chair, um, the snowshoe mountain ultra trail chair for, for new England. So you're the guy that, uh, that helps to organize and coordinate, uh, mountain ultra trail racing here in new England for USA track and field. Um, the, the loon mountain race actually has two important, uh, distinctions or designation. One is a national, uh, designation and one is a, one is a new England designation. Uh, tell the listener about, uh, what what the Loon Mountain Race is this year in terms of in terms of a championship event? Well, um, and it's funny, hot off the presses this morning. Um, it's also breaking got, news. Got another P designation. Um, so first of all, it's the USATF New England uh, Regional Mountain Running Championships. Um, there's some prize money associated with that, as well as um, you know medals for open and uh, age group awards. Um, it is also um, this year. It is the, I think it's the called the uphill USATF Championships. Yeah, vertical, um, vertical mountain running. Vertical mountain running. Yeah, yeah, which is with that. Which which, I, I'm I don't I don't blame you for stumbling over that because it's an entirely brand new thing. Yeah. And, and, um, and what that was, um, is there is now, and really there's kind of some, some background on that. Um, the world mountain running championship, um, originally was a short race. Um, it's, uh, and you know, short distance wise somewhere, somewhere around 11 to 13 kilometers. Um, it would alternate every other year between uphill and downhill. Um, as it got, it, as it became an official um, IAAF championship, um, IAAF is looking to grow the sport of trail running and mountain running and trying to bring all these disparate associations together. Um, ITRA, which is I think it's the International Trail Running Association. Um, I may be wrong on the exact, um, but th there's a few different organizations as well as the World Mountain Running Association. And they wanted to make a giant championships that includes a short distance race, um, this vertical um, challenge type race, um, as well as then like a, I think it's a 40K and an 80K uh, trail champs and mountain champs and, um, and so there, it has just grown considerably. And so that's where this was the opportunity to have a qualifier for that new um, kind of vertical uh, race only. And so Loon's got a spot. Actually, the other U.S. mountain running championships will be over um, at Whiteface Mountain. Um, Ian Golden will be putting it on. And um, he just put on one of the long distance qualifiers this past weekend, which I heard amazing things about. I've always actually haven't even met him yet, but uh, I'm looking forward to being there at uh, Lake Placid to help out because 
Uh, I've just heard he just does such a phenomenal job on races. Um, and yeah, it's red, always great. Red, yeah. Red, red newt racing. Yeah. They're yeah. They're and, and it's just, I love, um, honestly, when I first got involved in hosting qualifiers, um, it was easy to host a qualifier because there weren't a lot of people that wanted to get involved and do it. Um, and over time that's become more competitive. And I love that he dove into this and he just puts on quality events. And so, yeah, Loon um, is going to be that vertical race championship for us this year. And then hot off the presses today, um, there is a race in Italy called challenge Stellina. Um, that is going to host uh, what's called a meeting of nations um, mountain uh, race, which is something they kind of started last year when they couldn't have the world championships. And Loon is going to, the top two spots at Loon, men and women will qualify automatically for the U.S. Uh, they're going to send three athletes from the U.S., three, three men and three women to that event. And that event is at the end of August um, in Italy. Um, Challenge Tolina is kind of one of these storied, um, Italian mountain races. Um, last year, uh, COVID prevented the U S from sending a team, but they did this, uh, kind of meeting of nations type of thing where they wanted to still retain a way where teams within kind of Europe, although anyone is welcome to come, could compete in these short mountain races outside, um, this now much larger world and trail championships that's occurring. So, um, so the, the 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 listener who's familiar with the uh, the U.S. Mountain Running Championships, which uh, you know uh, up until just a, a few years ago, the U.S. Mountain Running Championships were held every year somewhere in the United States. So historically, uh, it, it was it was held at several different places each year, but then eventually there was one qualifier. Um, uh, one qualifier each year, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the course profile, uh, changed from year to year. Uh, there would be uphill years, um, um, in, because the world mountain running championships were uphill, uh, only. And so therefore the qualifier was uphill. And then there were up down years where the world mountain running course was an up down course. And so the U S qualifier was an up down course. Well, that, changed recently um and um uh, and and so there is not now uh an annual u.s mountain running championship in terms of in terms of what's being sanctioned by usa track and field what can the new england mountain runner uh expect or what can the u.s mountain runner expect will there be a u.s mountain running championship every other year and if so what might the course profile look like? Um, well, and this is kind of my own interpretation of it, but so the world champs is now going to be every other year, which is similar to world cross country is every other year. And I think realistically, some of that is finances um, to find a host every year. It's a fair amount of money to put on host a thousand people or whatever. Um, this year, it's going to be November in Thailand, crossing my fingers. It happens. It got postponed fortunately, because of COVID once. Um, but no, I, from my understanding, um, the U.S. will continue to have a national championship every year, whether they also do a vertical champs every year. And I think part of it is we don't need a world champs to have a national champs. And so I think, you know, we have momentum. Um, to me, there'd be a real risk of losing momentum if you don't have a champs every year. You, you start to lose 
kind of name recognition and things. Um, in the same way, I think there's a U.S. cross-country championships every year, even though world only happens every other year too. But no, I and that's and you know it'll continue. I think to rotate around the country of where it occurs. Okay, all right, got it. Um, so um, I'm gonna let's let's save the conversation about the Cranmore Mountain Race for our Cranmore Mountain Race preview show that you and I will do in October because the Cranmore Mountain Race from a as, from a historical perspective actually has even more history than Loon, um, uh, even if it hasn't been as large in terms of participation. So we got a lot of things to talk about with Cranmore, but let's wait and save those nuggets for the Cranmore preview show that we'll do in October. When I want to shift gears about and talk, uh, talk with you for a few minutes is about, uh, and we, we just talked a lot about you facilitating other people's physical activity <laughs> and other people's recreational and racing pursuits. Um, uh, you, you, you alluded to it sort of in passing at the very beginning of the conversation, um, that you, you know, kind of started as a trail runner, um, mountain running, got into snowshoe running, uh, and then you got hurt. And, uh, you know, I, I, I want to say that it was, that it was the, it was the early mid two thousands when I first, when I first met you, that you were dealing with some sort of maybe snowshoe relating related yes. injury. And it, and while, you know, I, I do remember that you, you did recover from that because you and I, 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 I have a handful of pictures of you and I running together at, at Northfield mountain race at, uh, at the, uh, the chief Mahoney, uh, road race a few years back. Um, but yeah, I, I tell, t tell us a little bit, a little bit about your own personal trail, mountain, snowshoe, running, racing background. Well, I got into it, um, as I mentioned a little earlier, um, got into it because of friends like, Oh, you should do Mount Washington. And then after that, um, I think I may have done a half marathon cause that was nearby. And I did a, I do remember my first 5k. That was the first race I did. And I had a really good first mile and we'll just leave <laughs> it at that. <laughs> it was over in Plymouth, but, um, no, I, um, I was like, I think a lot of, um, although I feel like there's more people now in tune with, uh, whole body fitness and don't just run more miles to get better. Um, but that's where I was at in the early two thousands. And I kept, and there is a point, especially when you first start running. Um, you know, I, I always, when people ask me if they first start running, you know, Paul, how can I get better? And I'll say, I just say run more, um, because in the beginning it's true. Um, <laughs> but the problem is, um, if you also have to remember the rest part. And that's exactly what happened to me. Um, I had my best time at Washington, my best 5K PR, although that improved later on. And I had my best time at half marathon. And then um, was doing the snowshoe running and continued. And so I was using the logic, well, you know, I keep getting stronger on snowshoes. I'm just going to run seven days a week on snowshoes. And then I did three races and two weekends and they were the best races I ever did. And then suddenly my um, right butt was hurting. And uh, 18 months later, I was able to run again. Um, cortisone shots and other stuff. And then I found this phenomenal uh, osteopath that I worked with. Um, I think I, I 
got prolotherapy, which I think is a more common thing now. Um, I know there's another version of it now where they also use uh, red blood cell injections. Uh, Chris, you know the name of it. I forget. Um, but that she was able to get me back running after a month. But while I was injured, um, that's when I kind of dove into the volunteering side because, you know, I feel like there's two ways you can go when you're hurt. You can either, you don't want to be around runners because it's depressing as all get out or it's your only contact with them. So you stay around them. And that's kind of the route I went. Um, and then when I came back, then I was, I was pretty much able to get back to where I was um, and, you know, and, and kind of get back to my, my uh, previous uh, fitness and everything. And then I don't know, I, I started getting hamstring issues. Um, I did a trail marathon because I felt like it's funny. I've always done short stuff and I'm always better at short stuff than long stuff. And uh, did a trail marathon and then tried to do it better the next year and really injured my hamstring. And that's when I started really back off racing. It's also around when I got two hounds. Um, <laughs> and now, honestly, I almost all of my running, I still do Washington. Um, I think, I think Washington just owns me at this point. Uh, <laughs> but, but past that, I don't, I don't really do any races, but I still, I just love running and being out in the woods. And now I spend time with my dogs in the woods and that makes me just as happy that I can still run. I, I still remember the point at which I got hurt training for that trail marathon the second year and that same osteopath said to me, um, she was like, Paul, um, I can help you get the personal best in the marathon this year, or I can keep you running until your sixties, at least pick one. Cause I can't do both. And that was kind of my eye opener on, all right, Paul back off a little. And that's when I, but I still love being out there. I mean, to me, trail running allows me to do a lot of things. It allows me to enjoy hiking. Honestly, it allows me to be doing stupid things like staying up too late um when i play in a band because you kind of that fitness and stamina you get from being out and just enjoying the woods plus it's just it's my mental health break as well i'm incredibly fortunate to live right near a bunch of trails and uh it's just a great way to be outside i, yeah. I don't think i'll ever stop trail running as long as i can yeah so um i mean i, I uh I, I always enjoy the the photographs and the videos of of you and Sam and Roxy on their Canacross setup. Uh and occasionally Frank Holmes uh yes. makes an appearance uh uh in in the pictures and video as well. So um yeah, so a a, a typical week, uh how many days a week are you running? Um I would say at this point running five and then the other two hiking or walking. Um pretty much I need to get out with the dogs every day because the dogs need to get out every day. Um, they are both 11 at this point, but they still need to get out every day. Um, but yeah, I, I love to get out. Honestly, the days I don't get out, I'm, I, I don't want to say I'm horribly stressed, but I can tell like my dogs know what they're talking about when they say you need to get out every day. <laughs> Well, there's, there's tremendous therapeutic benefit, physical benefit, but also mental, uh, spiritual benefit to, to being, uh, to being out, uh, in the woods. Um, before I ask you about, uh, about, about a quote that you shared with me recently about, uh, about, um, 
physical activity and getting older, um, you, you, you don't just run up the Mount Washington road race on the day of the Mount Washington road race. You also do something called Alton Weagle Day. I used to. I, I don't anymore, but yes. What, I, yeah. Tell the listener, tell the listener, if, if you would, be, about what Alton Weagle Day is, because up until a few years ago when you started doing it, I had no idea what it was. And then once you started posting about it, it was one of the most fascinating things I had ever heard. So Alton Weagle is a guy who I forget when in Mount Washington history, but he was well known for unique ways of going up the auto road. One time, I think he pushed a lawnmower. There's all kinds of different ways he went up. And so kind of, now, by sold... the way, this was, this was authorized or was unauthorized? Oh yeah. I, no, I think it was authorized. Okay. All right. Got um, but the rate, the auto road to kind of celebrate their official opening of the season, which is always Memorial day. They do Alton Weagle day, which is they celebrate the first time going up Mount Washington, whatever way you're going to do it. Like people will dress in specific costumes or like, uh, here, I'll put a plug in for biathlon because, you know, I have to at some point. Uh, Sean Doherty, Olympic biathlete, well, he was, I think, the first person to roller ski up the road. And he probably wasn't even winded, but that's another story. Um, but yeah, and so when I heard about this, um, I'm fortunate enough to live close enough that I can, you know, I like to get out either on Hurricane Mountain Road or in in the auto road if i can ever get up there to do some training runs and um i realized well if i do alton weagle day i can get a ride down for free <laughs> and if you've ever walked down the road there's there's a big bonus for that and so that's what that's how i first did it and i forget what i did the first year um i'm trying to remember what i was the first on and then the second time, oh, I think the first time was I was the first time having two dogs on a harness going up. And then I started doing the costumes. I went as um, the Grinch with one of my dogs. Um, that year, the funniest part was uh, it was ridiculously hot. And so if you look, they took a couple pictures of me halfway up and I'd had the green face paint on. And like, I look like... Um, Oh, what, what's the Scottish war movie? Um, like Braveheart? Yes. I look like one of the guys in Braveheart in battle. I just, my face had battle paint all over it. It wasn't green anymore. Um, I did it that way. And then um, I also did it as Buddy the Elf. Um, and that's because someone told me years ago, I look, um, I look like Will Farrell, And um, so I did it as Buddy the Elf. That was way too much fun. <laughs> and then I actually got to do it with my son, Miguel. Um, we went as um, Napoleon Dynamite. Yes, Napoleon Dynamite and Pedro. Um, and that's one of my favorite pictures I have is the two of us running up there. And Miguel was like the perfect Pedro with his pencil mustache. And we've got this picture of the two of us at the top. It's it's so much fun. Like if you ever get a chance to do it, you, you'll find a unique way. Like anybody listening to this, you'll find a unique way. And it's a fun way to go up. And then they have a ceremony afterwards. Um, in my office area at home, I have my like five official certificates that certifies that Paul Kirsch and like the best part is both of my dogs have certificates in their name because Howie Weems is an awesome guy who used to be in charge of the auto road and he wrote up certificates for the dogs too. So those are all framed in my basement. 
That is very, that's very, very, very cool. Um, <laughs> the last question I have about, about physical activity, and then I, uh, I want to talk about your, your, your other, um, uh, your, your other, uh, unique, um, um, uh, pastime. Um, you, you recently shared with me, uh, a, a quote, um, um, that, that I think summed up your approach to physical activity as you get older. And that and you, you, you said, you, you, you said, um, practicing gratitude with, with aging. Um, what, 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 what does that, what does that mean to you? Um, well, I think it's something it, it's, um, started happening, I think, kind of focus on gratitude when my older son started college, because that seemed like such a life milestone. Um, all of a sudden, one of my kids was gone, and was going to be off on a journey that I wasn't a part of anymore. And I felt like I went from whatever age I was then 50 to 150, like it just in terms of all of a sudden, his childhood was gone. And I just started to focus um, I don't know, on appreciating things. And then I think during the pandemic, um, that happened even more. Um, the four of us were at home, both kids doing remote school. Um, and with all the tough things going on in a lot of different places with the pandemic, we were fortunate to, first of all, we all got along. We were all able to do our jobs um, and we could get outside. And I just really have started to focus on meditation and gratitude and appreciating what I have. Um, and I don't mean that to say I don't plan for the future, but I really kind of enjoy living in the moment and appreciating because you never know when things are going to change. And it kind of translates into my running as well. I just, I love the fact like Frank Holmes, Frank is 74 right now. If I say 75, he'll get upset because he's, I think he turns that this year, but <laughs> I run with a guy who's 74 and, you know, people guess he's 60 if they see him. Um, but once a, one of us every week is saying something about, let's just stop for a second. Look at that sunrise. Look at this and look around at what we have. And it's like, that's why I appreciate running. Running now allows me to get out and just enjoy nature and enjoy the outside and honestly enjoy my dogs. Like I love observing chris you probably know this from your own dogs it's fun to watch their brains and how they process things outside and there's such a simplistic beauty to it and i kind of want to do that same simplistic beauty on my own yeah you know i i've had a very similar experience um since becoming a dog owner three years ago when we brought tuckerman home um then just a year ago added uh, added boone uh to the pack um I, I've never done so much walking yeah. in my, in my life as I've done over the last three years. I, I, I walk the dogs every day, year round outside minimum of an hour every day. Um, and I, you know, I, I very undervalued walking as a physical activity. In fact, I, I always felt like it was a waste of time. Um, and so therefore I, I never did it before I had dogs, but, um, but since, since having dogs, um, for me anyway, it's, it's been a great excuse to slow down. Now yeah. we like, like you, we, we, we don't walk on the roads. We, we were in the woods. We're either on trails or we're bushwhacking through the woods. Um, and I have no distance objective, right? I mean, we, we walk for an hour, but I don't care. I mean, sometimes Paul, 
we don't go more than a mile because I'm looking at <laughs> mushrooms. I'm looking we're, we we're finding, you know, dead deer carcasses or we're, 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 we're checking out frogs in a vernal pool. Like sometimes, sometimes I literally don't go more than a mile in that hour, but yet it, it doesn't, it makes no difference to me right. that, that having dogs, um, um, has, has really, has given me the opportunity and it's given me the permission to slow down and to engage the natural world around me. Quite frankly, I'm sure you'd probably uh, 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 agree with this, that, that trail running affords that opportunity to, to do that too. Like as a road runner, I don't think I ever remember ever on a road run stopping and looking at some unusual wildflowers that I'd never Agreed. seen before on the side of the road. But I can't tell you how many times now that I'm out for a trail run and I'll, and I'll get to an open summit and I'll just stop and I'll look at the clouds or I'll look to see how far I can see or like, you, you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's, there's no burning urgency to keep moving. Like if I see something that draws my interest, we stop. Um, I don't know. I, I think that's really unique to trail running. Do you, do you feel the same way? I do. And it, and it's, um, you know, it, it's kind of fast hiking in a way, but I, I do just really enjoy that. And it's, it's funny because Paul five years ago used to pause his watch then. Now I don't care. That's exactly right. <laughs> because, uh, and it, you know, and it is because I know I'm not really racing as much anymore, but my goal is just to be outside. And it, it is so funny. I used to be, oh, oh, stop, stop. And, and now I'm just like, hold on, let's look at this. Like there's a couple places around here I often run and like there's a beaver dam that Frank and I often stop at. Well, of course the dogs are quite interested in the beaver dam as well, but it is, it's just, it's so much fun. Like, and sometimes they'll stop for chipmunk patrol and then they're just digging a hole and I'll be in hysterics just watching them for the same reason. I just, I love, I, I love that, uh, that to them time doesn't matter. Like they'll finish when they're done. I've even had it sometimes where I'm taking them at lunch because I work from home. I'm fortunate to do that. I take them from lunch and I'm like bugging them like we got to go. And there's a beauty in the fact that they don't really care. <laughs> so what when we get back to dinner's not till four. Yeah, I, I love that dogs have no sense of urgency, even even when maybe it would benefit me if they did have a little bit more urgency. They have no sense of urgency. Yeah. So there's actually yeah, they, they there's actually a lot to learn from the dog's brain. Well, trail running and mountain running isn't your isn't your only uh, isn't your, your only pastime uh, and the only way that you spend your time. Uh, you're you're also a member of a band. Um, and, um, uh, actually a, a, a very well-known band in the Valley, Diana's Bath Salts. Um, uh, and, uh, I, I, I've had the good fortune to hear you play a couple times. In fact, uh, you and I have hired your band to play after, after, uh, our Cranmore mountain race two different times. Yes, I believe. Um, once at the Cranmore Mountain Race venue, once at uh, uh, Tuckerman Brewing Company, um, and uh, and and your your band is phenomenal. How'd you get involved in a in a band? Where where did that come from? Well, I actually uh, been playing a lot longer than running. Actually, um, started playing guitar when I was about fifteen. I played piano before that and didn't really like it because it was more structured. And then remember my brother got drums and I wanted to learn how to play and um, started on acoustic, hated it and got an electric. And that was much more to my 
uh, it was more suitable to me and kind of taught myself in the beginning and eventually had a teacher. And then I played in a couple bands when I was down in Philly and that was all originals. And we, we had a lot of fun with it. Got to play around at clubs. Uh, I, I still remember one band I wanted to see uh, band's name was Volcano Sons. They're kind of a post-punk band. And I remember calling up the club cause I was, I wanted to see him and I was 19 and it was a, you know, it was a bar. And so I called up the club asking, could we open to them for them for free so I could get in. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and it's kind of funny because those bands were all original stuff and then moved up to New Hampshire and kind of left that all behind. Um, although I did keep it up, my brother and myself and a group of friends, we all get together for this kind of guys weekend we've been doing now kind of fell by the wayside the last couple of years, but we get together and we play music. We all kind of know each other from that and be somewhere rural Maine, rural New Hampshire. Band and camp. Band camp. Yeah. And that's, of course, we call it band camp. And um, one of the guys I play with through that um, was somebody I worked with up here. I got to know, I think I've known him like 15 years now. And it was like eight or nine years ago. Um, he reached out to me because he and another guy had started playing open mic night at the Red Parker pub up here. And I had had a bass at that point. I was playing guitar previously and I was playing a little bit with bass. And uh, he was like, any way I could convince you to uh, play in our band, we need a bass player. And I was like, well, I really don't have time. So sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because it just seemed like too good of an opportunity. And then I remember we got our first show. Um, like, it's funny. So when you play in an originals band, you know, whatever amount of originals you have is what you play. That might be 40 minutes, an hour or whatever. We're in a cover band up here and you're expected to play for three hours with breaks. And so now you're talking about not knowing 10 songs. You got to know 40 to 50 songs. Wow. Um, and so I had to learn, you know, we all had to learn a lot of songs pretty quick. And th that song catalog now, it's crazy. We probably know like 200 songs. A uh, hundred of those we never want to play again because we're sick of. So I don't. <laughs> Amazing. And then our, our lead singer, I always enjoy um, when we're playing at places. And if somebody comes up and requests by an artist, we just don't know anything by. He'll just introduce the next song as <laughs> this song is by. Um, but some, sometimes it works. But but yeah, so I've been doing that. And I think we've been playing together now like eight years. Wow. And we just play around the valley pretty much because we all have full time jobs. couple couple shows a a month um and honestly we just have a lot of fun the four of us really enjoy each other um we've gone through three drummers um which kind of starting to get to the spinal tap level but um <laughs> first one it just didn't work out the second one um actually he was having a kid like and he was he was great he just he didn't have the time anymore and then adam our current drummer was in another band as well and still is uh and he's just been phenomenal. And it's kind of fun because Adam's closer to 30. I'm in my 50s. The other two guys are in their 40s. So we have a wide variety of music we'll play and everything. So that that's it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And the uh, the, the the age range of the groupies uh, is is probably that wide as well. Um, <laughs> where, where, where did the name Diana's bath salts come from? It sounds like it, it sounds, it sounds regional, but it also sounds incredibly inappropriate. Yes. And I think the answer is yes to both. So before that, uh, we were actually kind of trying to get names off of Facebook. Whenever we played, we, they'd come up with a new name. Um, 
and before that it was the Conway Daily Suns, and there there were some other names too. Was that S O N S? Yes, of course, yes. yes. And then um, somebody suggested uh, Diana's Bath and Beyond, and this was when <laughs> the drug. This was when you know, yeah, great, great quality, more more quality uh, listening for children. Um, bath salts was the big dangerous drug at the time. And so we took Diana's Bath and Beyond and made it Diana's Bath Salts. Um, I remember our early slogan was so good, uh, you'll tear your face off. That was that was our quality. Um, and it's, I guess to me, the funny part is if you met the four of us, we could not be further away from four guys. We're, we're four pretty boring guys. Um, and then, yeah, and our, our current slogan is uh, third best band on Town Hall Road. Because, um, just because, because we used to practice. We don't even practice on Town Hall Road anymore. But um, but we, we kind of enjoy like having a lot of fun, trying to be as good as we can be, but just not taking ourselves seriously either, which just makes it more fun too. Um, if you ever follow our Facebook posts, um, I always have the eternal fear that, um 90 percent of cover bands band photos just look like a bunch of old guys and so i just pull random images i can find that have no relation to anything and those become our facebook posts which is always a fun thing of people people can guess where they're coming from um the, the recent one i'll share on that that was kind of similar to the band name the inappropriate level it was I discovered by looking it up that we were playing on the 25th anniversary of Heaven's Gate. Do you remember that cult with the Nikes and the purple? So that's what I used for the picture for that show. And I was so excited because like four people saw it and said, that's Heaven's Gate. So <laughs> so you 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 mentioned the Red the Red Parker pub. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I wanted to ask one follow-up question as it relates to uh, to your band. Um, recently, you guys played a benefit for Ukraine. Um, tell uh, tell the listener a little bit about uh, about that benefit show. Uh, what, what what was it all about? Uh, who, who did it benefit? Uh, how did that come about? Yeah, so um, I think like a lot of people, um, you know, we've been just pretty impacted. Not not that there haven't been wars in the past, but I feel like this also goes along with getting older. You you get a little more sensitive to things too. And, um, and I think the fact that this war has played out so much in social media as well, um, I've been hit pretty hard just by seeing kind of just the horrible humanitarian crisis that's occurring there. Um, and I had mentioned it to the rest of the band. Um, hey guys, how about if our next show, we just, you know, donate our proceeds and let's see if we can get people to donate money towards Ukraine relief. And, um, our lead singer um, is a, a teacher at Freiburg Academy, which is a, a kind of a unique thing. It's half boarding school, half local public high school in Freiburg, Maine. Um, and he mentioned, he's like, that would be phenomenal. I actually have two students from Ukraine. Um, and then it, I realized I knew one of the kids because I helped at his robotics meet. Um, and I got to meet one of the kids, amazing, phenomenal kids. And they've been doing fundraisers. So I, we've done fundraisers in the past with the Parka and Terry and George are just phenomenal. They always want to give back to the community. And so I reached out and I was like, Terry, would you be okay if we asked for donations at a show? And she was, it was just um, amazing because she was looking to do something and we happened to be playing there a month later, two nights in a row. And so we just organized Ukraine Relief Weekend. We chose World Central Kitchen because I thought... Um, 
It's a good fit for a restaurant to pick World Central Kitchen for those not familiar with it. Um, just an absolutely phenomenal charity that has helped people around the world. Um, Jose Andre. And it, it just seemed, as I said, it just seemed like the perfect fit for the parka. Um, and we knew the money would be going to a good place. And we did some promotion around it. We actually got to play on the radio as part of promotion ahead of time, which was fun because none right. of us have ever played on the radio before. It was also funny because we had to practice the day before because that was acoustics and we never play acoustics. And we're like, we can't sound like crap on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> this is your like, one big break. Yes. Um, and actually the two Ukraine students came, Terry came, the, the kids are phenomenal. Like their families are still there. Uh, they have some some family members in Ukraine, some that are staying with relatives or friends in other parts of Europe. But, you know, it it became twice as personal hearing those kids talk about it. And at the end, our goal was to maybe do three or four thousand dollars. And at the end of the weekend, we raised twelve thousand. Wow. And it was just phenomenal. The generosity of people. Uh, one guy dropped off a five hundred dollar check like he didn't even stay. He just dropped off a check. And it's just it was so cool. We also got to meet a woman uh, there who runs um, a local outlet store for Coach Handbags, who's from Ukraine. She collected a truckload of donated clothing that got shipped off to Ukraine. So it's just, it's been really cool to see all of these fundraisers um, occur. And that was just, it, it's, as I think we were all saying together, like, you know, very few times do you feel like when you're doing something that everything you're doing about it is good. And this was just that weekend was just such a good feeling. It was fun to even see the kids there as they were selling raffle tickets. They were enjoying and like people when we introduced them, people clapped and cheered for them. And it was nice to hear them say how welcome they felt in the community and everything, too. So, and you know, and unfortunately, we might be doing another one because who knows how long this will be going on. Well, it's 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 very cool to be able to uh, it's very cool to be able to give back that way. Um um, you know, by, by doing something you love doing and you'd be doing anyway. Right. Um, so for the listener that wants to keep an eye out for, uh, any, any other fundraiser you guys might be doing in the Valley, uh, where, where do they go to find out more about, uh, Diana's bath salts and, and, and what you guys are up to? Um, Facebook. Okay. Um, yeah, Diana's bath salts, Facebook or Instagram. Um, we're the only Diana's bath salts. Um, <laughs> You don't, you don't have to worry about finding, finding the verified one. We're the only one. Okay. That's, that's fair. Um, all right. I want to finish with, I want to finish with uh, a fun little segment of the show. I like sure. to call three random questions. Okay. Right. Uh, now the first thing I need you to do though, is I need you to verify to the listener that you have not been given these three questions in advance. Can you verify that? Yes. As long as you're not going to ask for, uh, what was my favorite teacher, my social security? No, go ahead. Uh, yes, I can verify. Uh, I have not seen you since last uh, October. So I haven't seen the questions. Sure. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. All right. So here we go. This is three random questions with Paul Kirsch. Paul, first question. Uh, what is the most irrational superstition you have? Um, fear of heights, I guess. I mean, is that a superstition? <laughs> Which is great. A mountain runner. Sure. Yeah. 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 A mountain as runner, a, as and a... I like it's funny. I'll, I'll run up a mountain and everybody else is like, cool. And I'm like, I'm not going to the edge. So yeah, that, that's the great one. Hey, mountain team manager guy. Yeah, he's scared of heights. 
That is actually perfect. Um, all right, random question number two. <laughs> What's a story you love to tell, but seldom have the chance to? Huh. Wow, that's a good... Well, I actually would have to say something you and I were talking about earlier, which was um, when Chris and I did a Facebook Live from, and that was when like Facebook Live was cutting edge. Um, for, for you kids out there, there was a point at which this was new new uh, and exciting to be able to do videos of yourself. This was before all that TikTok stuff. Um, anyway, um, Chris and I had, um, uh, we've always enjoyed microbrews together and, and everything. And uh, we had been working all day at Loon in the heat, uh, setting up the course. And, you know, that's, there's just a lot of work to do that. And then we were staying at a local ski house, um, which we had rented out for ourselves and some friends and athletes and stuff. And we go back there and we we're going to eventually go to dinner, but we were just kind of talking and having some beer forgetting the fact that we haven't eaten and we're probably dehydrated and then chris is like you know we should do a facebook live um before uh we go out to dinner because you know we want to build up the race again and you know that was when it was exciting because you could see how many people were watching it and all that and so chris and i um we were not uh we were not exactly uh a hundred percent there we we had if if you go on the loon mountain race page you can even find the video where you can see the two of us doing this and so that i don't know it's just it was always a funny moment because i think once you started filming was when i realized it's kind of like if anyone else has ever uh you know had probably a beer more than they should have and then you go into like a grocery store and you feel like everyone's staring at you it was one of those except we we're broadcasting live and we're the race directors trying to be respectable so and we and we had we had no script we had no yeah. we had no rehearsal we, we really didn't have any idea what we were going to talk about we just we just figured well it's 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 paul and chris right we're interesting People yes. uh, and important and people want to listen to what we have to say because it's the you know, it's the evening before the Loon Mountain race. Right. And and it's a and it's a big deal. And we're and, big, and, and we're we're, a big deal. we were full of liquid courage. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> that that is actually one of my favorite stories <laughs> that like you, I don't nearly have the opportunity to, to tell that uh, as much as I uh, as, as much as I'd like to. Random question number three for Paul Kirsch. This is actually my favorite. And, and I actually I, I'm almost positive you're going to have you're going to have an answer to this right off the top of your head. What's the oddest way you've ever hurt yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, well, I'm going to guess it has something to do with a broken toe, Paul, because if it doesn't have something to do with a broken toe, I'm going to be disappointed. Well, I was going to say, I have a youth one and an adult one. Um, okay, I'll start with the youth one, which Please. is great that I was riding my bike and I was 12 and I turned into my driveway going 40 miles an hour because I'm an idiot. And I hit the curb and I went over the handlebars and smashed my face into a rock, but I did not cut my face. I did not cut my lips but I chipped my front two teeth in half, which means I was like screaming when I hit the rock because I had no cuts or anything, but I won't. I, so that would be the one. And then the other would be um, twice I have broken my toe before, the week before the Cranmore mountain race, um, which is great for a guy who has to go up and down the mountain flagging it. But this time the awesome part was doing it by 
stubbing my toe walking in the dark in my bedroom, stubbing it into a metal <laughs> uh, bedpost. And I knew like I stubbed it and it hurt. And I was just like, you did it again. You, you, you did it again. The other time was cool. I was out trail running and I stubbed it. But yes, I literally, and it's like, and like, do you just tell everyone how dumb you are? And so, yeah, I just ended up, but I remember like, of course I stubbed it and it hurt a lot. So what did I do? I went food shopping and walked on it for an hour and then came back and, uh, yeah, I remember at the race. Remember, I had the boot on. I was like, I'm, I'm wandering around with this boot, which then, of course, when you're in your 50s and you walk around imbalanced like that, then your back is like, what are you doing to me and everything else? Yeah. Yeah. So that's I haven't I don't think I've. Yeah, I haven't broken any bones, just toes, ironically. Oh, Paul, this uh, this this conversation has been has been fun as I expected it to be fun. Uh, I am looking forward to uh, our Cranmore Mountain Race preview show uh, in a couple of months. Uh, I want to thank you uh, again for appearing on the show. Sure. This is great. It's been a lot of fun, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. OK. You know, as much of a beast as that Loon Mountain race had become to organize and execute, that conversation with Paul gives you a little insight into how rewarding it was for both of us. Oh, and that Loon Mountain race Facebook Live situation was really pretty funny in hindsight. I'm not sure how much useful information people got out of it at the time, but if nothing else, it gives a little glimpse into our really great relationship. Well, if you liked what you heard, please consider giving the show a follow. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so make sure to check that out too. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time. <laughs>